the Derek Hunter Podcast, and our star date is Thursday, December 28th, 2023. My greetings and felicitations. As the Squire of Gothos says to the crew of the USS Enterprise in the Star Trek original series episode titled The Squire of Gothos, for 25 years I was a member of Rush Limbaugh's highly overrated staff, as he lovingly called us. We even printed up shirts once that said highly overrated staff just for us so that we could tweak Rush a little. He was a big tweaker, as you may know. I'm the host of the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. I am also a columnist at the New York Sun. You can find me at historyauthor.com. You can also find me at nysun.com. That's where the New York Sun lives online. And at History Dean on the Twitters. Please do remember to support the Derek Hunter podcast at DerekHunter.Locals.com and at Patreon.com slash DerekHunterPodcast. He puts in real effort to do this show, and I can tell you as somebody who worked for the greatest of all time, and if you doubt that about Rush, it's what's on his death certificate under occupation. <laughs> Radio's greatest of all time. And there's work that goes into this. Let me tell you, radio when done right, it requires effort. Rush, he would weigh himself before the show and after at one point, and he would sweat out water weight just sitting there doing the show because he was always moving and he was always thinking, and there was a lot of energy that he burned in doing that show. Nowadays, a lot of people think anyone can get a microphone on Amazon and just start podcasting or think they can just start doing radio. If done well, that's just not the case, and Derek definitely does it right. He tries to live up to that legacy, tries to make radio interactive and something that values people's time, something that people will not feel like they just spent an hour listening to live reads and commercials, not feel like they spent an hour just being sold or listening to somebody's rambles. It is a rare feat, and you will be able to hear it soon, as you probably have heard the rumors, but I'll let Derek tell you that himself when he's back on January 2nd to bring in the new year and talk about what the future has in store for him. That's the January 2nd show. I will be here with you until then. Duffy wrote to patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast, and Derek was nice enough to forward this to me with a typically snarky Derek Hunter comment. But Duffy wrote, thanks to Dean, as always, an incredible resource, a guy like me who lives in the past. I only wish I could remember what happened last week. Well, Duffy, hopefully I'll do my job right today, and you'll remember things I said today long into the future, because that's the goal. This is not supposed to be fast food radio where you eat it and just head on down the road. This is supposed to be a real meal. So with that said, let's hit it. I want to talk about wider perspectives, that job that radio does, the goal of a good radio host, a good opinion writer, and that's to share with you. That's to look at things in a different way from what everyone else is saying. You read a lot of things, you listen to a lot of things out there, and it's all the same script. You pick up the New York Times, that's where everybody decides they're going to get their news. That's where they decide what they're going to cover and not cover, and often in what order. So what's the point of listening to anything else? If you miss it, you can catch it somewhere else. Everyone's saying the same thing. A lot of conservative media has become the same, or let's call it alternative media. Because with the explosion of blogs and Substack, everyone says pretty much the same thing. This is the case here if we look at the president of Harvard University. All the same things are being said pretty much. I'm going to play you a clip here of 
former Brandeis University president, Frederick Lawrence. And I'm going to try to offer you a little different perspective, and it's going to be a theme that we carry throughout the show. And you can impress your friends by making some of these observations. Hopefully, I'll spark some thought in all of you as well. This is Mr. Lawrence talking about the house probe into Harvard University and the anti-Semitism that's festering there, in particular, many other Ivy League universities. Here he is on CNN's The Lead with Jacob Tapper. We hear a lot at universities and academic institutions, teachable moment. Is this a possible teachable moment for her to say, look, look, I obviously in some instances was sloppy and I shouldn't have been and I should, I should have been at a higher standard and I hope we all can learn from my experience. I mean, is it, it's, I, I think it is a teachable moment. You know, it's not just a university story. I mean, you, you know this network has had issues with plagiarism. Uh, and, and other uh, historians, other writers have had issues with plagiarism. Every one of these is an opportunity to say that when you look to somebody else's work, you simply have to give credit for it. No one's saying that you can't use somebody else's work. You right. can't even quote from it, but you have to give credit. Right, and mistakes do happen, obviously. Right. I do wonder how artificial intelligence might make this even more complicated in the future. I think artificial intelligence is going to make this and so many other things more complicated in saying whose work is, is what. Um, I, I will say one other piece of this that I find particularly disturbing, however, is that this conversation we're having is about what Harvard ought to do with its allegations of academic integrity violations. None of this is the province of the Congressional Committee on Education. This is a private university. I, I'm shocked that those who call themselves conservatives and believe in small government would take this as the opportunity to force a national investigation and a national standard on private institutions. That's not how we do business in this country. We've certainly seen some conservative universities have had some problems in recent years. I'm thinking of Liberty University well, that weren't subject to any sort of congressional hearings, even though potentially, uh, well, let's just leave it at that. Uh, Frederick right. Lawrence, thank you so much. Good being with you, Jake. Yeah. You have to love this. You have to love people who presume to tell other people how to be real Christians or people do it with Muslims, a real Muslim. You're not a Muslim unless this. Now you're not a conservative if you use the government to ensure civil rights, apparently. That's not something that the government does. You have to love somebody on the left complaining about government intrusion in private institutions. Now, if you want to play this same game, you say, well, wait a minute, leftists are all for government having the final say on both speech and over private institutions. Suddenly, he says, this is not how we do business in this country. Since when exactly do we not do business that way in this country? It would be great if all your chortling was based in some kind of facts. But guess what? The government absolutely does do this. It happens all the time. Government has gotten its tendrils into all of these universities. The only one that is free because it refuses to take any money that's tied to the federal government, and it's been very hard for them to do it, is Hillsdale College. That's the only one I'm aware of that keeps complete independence and therefore is not subject to government regulation, government getting its tendrils into your universities and colleges and helping set the agenda because they offer money. Same way that they get their tendrils into states and get things done. They offer them a big block grant of money and they say, well, if you take this, though, then we want to say in how you spend it and what you do. And that is a way to get around that 10th Amendment that I mentioned yesterday that specifically says that the powers not given to the federal government in the Constitution are the powers of the state or to the people themselves that are in those states. Now, suddenly, perhaps it's perfect for Christmas time. Welcome to the party, pal. Yes, welcome to the party, pal. 
Suddenly now we hear not only somebody on the left, not somebody on CNN, but a former university president saying, keep your mitts off of our private institutions. Okay, not quite the case when it comes to things like standards and when it comes to Title IX, which is another interesting case in and of itself because that's something that suddenly conservatives are embracing and loving because they think it's a chance to push back against transgender ideology and men swimming with women suddenly switched, suddenly try to hold them responsible with their own language and their own laws. I'm here to tell you that is never going to happen. And I see a lot of that going on out there where people think this idea of, I can quote the Koran to somebody. I can quote a selective passage of the Bible. I can quote, say, Ronald Reagan to a conservative. I can quote some other piece of doctrine to somebody and disqualify their speech or shame them into it. It doesn't work that way. And I'll tell you why in just a second. First, I want to cite another example. And that is a headline here in the Washington Times where some of my writing has appeared. And I love the Washington Times. I love a lot of the opinions. It's titled, Biden's Migrant Surge Deepens America's Greenhouse Gas Problem. It's by Stephen Dynan. And as you can guess from that headline, I probably don't have to read too much, really. He quotes Michael McKenna. And he calls him an energy policy expert. By the way, expert's a word that's banned in the New York Sun. Think about how you become an expert exactly. Maybe you'll understand why. It's not a title. It's not a moment that you weren't an expert, then you woke up the next day, became a, an expert. It's one of those things that's just self-appointed. Like you can just become an environmentalist, for example, or you can just become a pastor one day. Just call yourself a pastor. That's fine. Or an advocate. That's another one that's a self-applied title. Doesn't really mean much. And the whole piece is about how people coming here from other countries, third world countries, they're using more power when they get here. And this is something that Mark Stein, one of our guest hosts for the Rush Limbaugh show, used to say that these people who think, well, I'm not going to have children because I'll save the planet in the UK. He said, who do you think is going to move into your apartment and your life? It's not going to be empty. It's going to be probably a family from somewhere where they have a lot of children and therefore a lot of carbon footprint. And it's not going to net accomplish anything. This is what you are opening yourself up to. And it's this is just virtue signaling. And it's certainly not doing a favor. This piece is along those lines. And it's certainly right on the money there. So I don't mean to criticize that. It makes a good point where the world needs more people with a high standard of living like America. Going to Africa, going to Latin America and saying, no, stay there in squalor because that's better for the earth is simply ridiculous. The U.S. has always made it cleaner, cleaner, cleaner every year. This includes plastics. This includes CO2 emissions. If you're worried about CO2 emissions, everything is cleaner. You go to the rest of the world, for instance, go look at the 10 most polluted places on Earth, all former Soviet bloc countries, all places where they don't have these environmental regulations. China's building coal power plants at an incredible rate because they want power, not just political power, but they need electric power to fund that expansionism that China is currently bent on. But what bugs me is the idea, and I don't know that this is Mr. Dynan's point here from the column, but the idea that you could somehow take something that the left loves, just like Title IX, and say, well, they don't like this weather. They have this global warming thing that was climate change, that now is climate crisis, but they, they don't like that. They don't like CO2. They don't like prosperity. So what we'll do is we'll agree with that. We'll agree that that's a problem and we'll try to use that 
to counter this other thing we don't like, which is illegal immigration. For instance, they say 700,000 people from Guatemala alone have been caught trying to enter the United States illegally since Biden's administration started. Now, that number alone is staggering. That's just the people that they caught, 700,000 people. Just from that one country is more than from a lot of states in the union. But the idea that you can use this against them misses the entire point, just like the narrative about the president of Harvard and trying to use that to shame conservatives. It is part of a larger plan. It's not really about the earth. If it was really about the earth, they would be criticizing China. They would be criticizing India. You don't hear that. You hear exclusively criticism of the United States. Gun control is the same thing. Certainly, there are people who want gun control. Most people I know who own guns, in fact, are the ones that very much want there to be safety. You don't hear a lot of people who are at the gun range who are going to go out and do mass shootings who are all for gun violence. It's a myth, and it's one that's been very powerful. But guess what? What do we hear? In fact, we heard it in one of the presidential debates that I wrote about in the New York Sun. We don't see this kind of violence anywhere else, the woman said. I think she was the Telemundo reporter or Univision. She was the Univision reporter, moderator for that debate with the Republicans. And I said, that's not true. Not one Republican pushed back on it, by the way, but that wasn't true. Mexico has a higher per capita murder rate with firearms in the U.S. Lots of countries do. What happened just now in the Czech Republic? We saw a mass shooting last week. How fast did that disappear from your screens? You may even have forgotten about it already. You don't pick up your phone anymore and see, well, well, it's Prague, there was a shooting. Why? Because it didn't fit the narrative. The killer was a student in school. He had maybe kind of a left-wing bent. Certainly wasn't anything they could clearly say was right-wing. It got broomed. These three Palestinian men who were shot up in Vermont, same thing. It was a terrible story. They couldn't really put it on anybody on the right, any of their usual suspects, the people they want to demonize. So what happened? They reset it and they just made it about America. It can only be the Republicans' fault or all Americans' fault. Same with that man who was killing those homeless people out in L.A., also a recent story, also disappeared from the headlines as soon as the guy turned out to be African-American, didn't fit neatly. They just broomed that. But in the build-up to it, we always heard how these people were going to be right-wingers. And when they are right-wingers, well, sure, they go to town on them. The guy who shot those three Palestinian men, he happened to be of a left-wing bent, so it just disappeared. It became about America then. So if you're going to fight gun control and say, look, these are ways that we could be safer. For instance, you tell people, hey, why don't we have people take that NRA course that teaches people to be safer with weapons, that teaches children, for example, they have a few steps that if you see a gun, leave it alone, first of all, don't pick it up, go tell an adult, tell the police, they, they have a bunch of guidelines for children. Nobody should want to argue with that, but yet they do. So is the goal really what the stated goal is, which is to keep people safer from firearms? Not for the people on the left in particular that are engaging in that dismissive attitude. Now, I'm not saying everybody, there's, there's a big chunk in any movement who are just going along to get along, who buy the narrative. But in this example, you're trying to shame people like you are with Title IX, and you're trying to say, hey, I'm going to hold you to your word. Well, they don't want to be held to their word. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the ambassador to the United Nations for Iraq. This is a video that I don't know if you saw way back when, when the U.S. managed to get to Baghdad. And you probably remember Baghdad Bob. He was out there saying, no, no, the Americans are nowhere near Baghdad. That is complete lie. It is imperialist pig dog lies. And then, of course, we had Thunder Run and our tanks drove through Baghdad and they were giving a big middle finger to Saddam and Saddam ended up being deposed and on the run and hiding in his little spider hole. 
Well, they went to the UN ambassador who had been parroting that same line, and the guy is smiling and laughing. He's like, oh, yes, it is over. And I said, well, well what? Wait, I five minutes ago you said it was literally that morning, I think, that he had been saying, no, no, Saddam is fine. The, the U.S. is not going to manage to make it to Baghdad. We are fighting back. Opening the door to his house and going in perfectly happy in one of those nice U.N. houses. Don't you love the people at the U.N. who are supposedly for all this good, wonderful stuff, and they're all living in those masonettes in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. Sure, he was just saying it as a means to an end. He was trying to buy a little time, and he figured out he had his Swiss bank account. What did he care? This Saddam went down. This is just how it went. Very telling clip. I don't know that it's still anywhere out there, but it was insane. Everybody in the press have been going to this guy day after day after day, treating him just like they're treating Hamas now, as if their stats and figures and stories of atrocities are true. And then one day, eh, the guy just gave it up. He just gave up the fight. Said he wasn't going to argue it anymore. It didn't even didn't even show didn't even show any concern, and that's because all they were professing wasn't the truth. And we know this in our personal life, and I think we don't look at politics the same way. We don't look at news the same way. People are trying to advance an agenda. How many times has somebody asked you to go to something you really don't want to go to? So what do you do? Make a bunch of other excuses. Maybe they're great reasons not to go, but that's not your central reason you don't want to go. You say, boy, there's a lot of traffic that night. You say, man, crime is really out of hand and I would have to drive and I don't want to drive and get carjacked. You know, I just read someone got carjacked the other night. You might say, well, I've been trying to watch my calories and there's going to be a lot of food at that party and a lot of drinks and it's probably better that I just didn't go and uh, I don't have anyone to go with. I don't know anyone else there. The bottom line is you just don't want to go. And the case here, whether it's at the border or whether it's defending anti-Semitism on a college campus, it's not about those things that you're professing or that people are professing in sound bites like that or in stories like that where they give these quotes. They don't care about the human toll of these things, be it gun control, with suffering of people around the world, or be it equality for women on campuses in the case of Title IX. They don't care about any of that. They have a larger goal. The goal always some way comes back to eroding the American way of life, eroding American prosperity, cutting America down to size, and they'll use any goal that they have to to get there. It's funny to me on gun control in particular. There was a long time in my life where if you said people need the Second Amendment and private firearms to defend against a rogue government, against a dictatorship in this country, oh my gosh, you were laughed out of the public square. Those of you old enough to remember this will recall that. What are you, crazy <laughs> dictatorship in America? Oh, my gosh, what a right-wing, crazy, Ruby Ridge lunatic this guy is. Now, come on, the U.S. is never going to have a dictatorship. Smash cut to 2020 or maybe 2016. Donald Trump comes along and it's, he's a dictator. I talked about yesterday how he even has a Biden White House calling the guy Hitler in their campaign. And what a mistake that is for him, for the country. And not a mistake, he's doing it deliberately, but it's bad for the country. It's a danger for the country. I fall into that sometimes saying stuff that Biden and other people are doing is a mistake, but it's not a mistake. A lot of people usually say it's a mistake without what I hope is that self-awareness, if you'll permit me to compliment myself. It's not. They're doing it for specific reasons. But what happened? I thought you were a crazy person if you said there might ever be a dictatorship in the United States. Now you're telling us that we're just one hair breath away from completely becoming the Fourth Reich, as if they don't really believe that any more than they believed before that the Second Amendment wasn't necessary because there could never be a dictatorship in America. It's just whatever they think to say at the moment. 
I'll give you a final example, and that's SDI. It's missile defense. Again, those of you old enough to remember the days of Duran Duran and mullets when that was actually acceptable to leave the house with pants made out of parachutes, what did they say? You can't hit a bullet with a bullet. That was their big talking point back then. You can't do missile defense. They mocked it as Star Wars, which was a lousy piece of branding because most people think Star Wars sounds awesome. We are going to have the Air Force and we are going to have the Space Force. Bill Clinton gets in, he cancels all the research into SDI. It was stupid. It was a boondoggle. It was no good. George W. Bush wins in 2000. He starts putting funding back. And then what happens? They managed to shoot down some missiles. I remember the first test, and nobody said, U.S. manages to shoot down a bullet with a bullet. Nope. That talking point just completely disappeared. It evaporated overnight. Them saying the United States, which had hit the moon, which was a lot harder than hitting a bullet with a bullet, by the way, We'd overcome all those technical limitations to create a missile defense. And now you have it being routine. In Yemen, in the Red Sea, the U.S. is shooting down missiles all the time that are coming from the Iran-backed terrorists in Yemen. They just shoot them down. As far back as the first Gulf War, we had Patriot missiles, which were the first fruit of the SDI research, shooting down SCUDs, SCUD missiles shot against Israel, trying to drag them into the war. Israel's Iron Dome is another fruit of this. America showed that it could be done, and other countries began to research it, and we began sharing our technology with our allies. But then you think of when there was that false alarm in Hawaii that said an ICBM is coming in. This is not a drill. Bend over, kiss your ass goodbye, because you're about to get nuked Hawaii. What did Hawaiians say? Why isn't there a missile defense? They wanted a missile defense in the worst way. Well, You had a senator, a Democratic senator, a very powerful one, and a war hero, a guy who ran to the sound of the guns at Pearl Harbor, Daniel Inouye, who was wounded in an incredible counterattack in Italy during World War II, lost his arm. If you haven't researched him, go back and read his story. But on missile defense, he was completely wrong. He opposed it, and why? It wasn't because they believed it was a waste of money. It wasn't because you can't possibly hit a bullet with a bullet. It wasn't because it wasn't practical. It certainly was, and that alarm showed that it was. Fortunately, it was a false alarm. It was because Reagan wanted it. Reagan made it a priority. Reagan was going to nuke the world, and this was provocative. And some of them, no doubt, really believed that. Some of them, no doubt, bought into this caricature of Ronald Reagan as some irresponsible cowboy. And imagine how safe we could be right now if they hadn't played political games with it. If they had really looked at the science... And we all follow the science, don't we, ladies and gentlemen? We love the science. Boy, we see somebody in a white lab coat and we, oh, gosh, that's almost as good as being an expert, putting on that lab coat and being a scientist. And they didn't because it became just another political issue. I don't know that we're going to see somebody who looks at issues that way in the near future, but this is part of our system and it has long been the case. Look at Ted Kennedy. In the mid-80s, he was writing letters to the Soviet Union and telling them, not to talk to President Reagan, not to hold summits. You think about that. We hear today about Russian collusion. That was real proven Russian collusion by Ted Kennedy. But yesterday I mentioned something about people saying nobody's above the law. Well, if you were a Kennedy, you were pretty far above the law. You could get away with a whole lot of stuff back then. And he certainly got away with that. And it's disgusting. And it was selling out the country. It was undermining the duly elected president. And whether you think that's okay because you hated the president or you wanted to undermine him, you didn't want to be able to make peace. Maybe Ted Kennedy thought he was going to run again in 1984 after, after running against President Carter in the primary. I don't know. But people get blinded by this. 
And it's one reason I think people need to always step back and look at these things with a clearer eye. Don't take what they tell you in the shell game. I'm also old enough to remember the three-card Monty games in Times Square, and they keep you distracted. They move those cards around. They try to make you bet on the one where the ball was instead of where the ball is. I think that happens with so much press today. I wanted to draw attention to those two examples. I hope you'll think about that theme more when you hear the news. Don't go for where the three-card Monty people in Washington are trying to get you to go. Don't look there. Look at what's behind it. Think about their past statements. Think about what their real end goals are. More often than not, you'll find it lines up with enriching their own power, certainly for Republicans as well as Democrats. And often you'll find it's to undermine America, to change it, to get you to change in some way, to get you to turn over some of your liberty to them by citing something that sounds just wonderful. Final example would be how they name bills. The law up in Canada called MADE has one of these infantile acronyms. It stands for Medical Assistance in Dying. Now, it's assisted suicide, and if you want to say assisted suicide, it's helping people kill themselves, is what it is. Life, the most precious gift that each of us have, and this is well on its way to very much cheapening it by encouraging people to get euthanasia. There was a case of a veteran from Afghanistan up in Canada, and he called and said he was depressed and, and sad, not thinking well, and the woman on the line recommended, hey, have you thought of killing yourself? Imagine. Just imagine that. There was another lady recently, there's a story in the news, it was about a woman, she had intestinal cancer that they finally identified at the long waiting list, and they said to her, well, we can't really do anything for you, but have you thought about killing yourself? Uh. <laughs> she came to the U.S., by the way, had a happy ending, because in America, who you always hear savaged as compared to Canadian health care, she was given a routine procedure to treat this abdominal cancer, and she is doing fine now. So God bless her. I'm glad she didn't listen to the person who said, hey, would you just like to kill yourself? And you remember when they mocked Sarah Palin in the 2008 campaign as John McCain's running mate for the Republicans' death panels? They said that was a lie because there was nothing called a death panel try to play their branding game. They do not like that. She never said that it was called a death panel. She defined it as that. And if you think they don't exist in socialized medicine, that's the only way that you can cut costs. You can't cut costs on the healthy. The only way you can cut costs is if you look at people and you say, they're just numbers. How much are we going to spend? Are we really going to spend this money on this person who doesn't have too long to live, maybe has a low percentage chance? Death panels are right there in Canada right now, but they hide it under this happy little acronym, we're helping people. We're not doing the bad thing. We're not undermining the life of the people in our country. We're not cheapening life. Well, of course you are. By definition, you are. But don't look at that. Look at the shiny thing over here. Look at the tassel on the spear. If you look at Chinese spears, you see they have a tassel on the end. That's to distract the enemy when they wave those around, when they're fighting with those. Don't fall for the tassels, everybody. Think about all of these stories I've mentioned today and look at every issue you find in a new light. Don't follow along with whatever somebody tells you the narrative is. And by all means, if you hear somebody in the press out there, even somebody you like who's just going along with the narrative, point this out to them. If they're like Derek and I, they'll be glad to hear it. Another example about swallowing the narrative, and that's some polls we're seeing that are really troubling about anti-Semitism and about hatred of Jews in general, not just Israel, not just Zionism, not just support for the Palestinians as they love to try to cast it as. 
And I'll take a moment and say, even poles sometimes are one of those tassels on a Chinese spear because people use them to make news. You craft the question in such a way you know that your response will be sensational. And that's a little bit the case in some of these polls on how people feel about terrorists. But they're also uncovering some disturbing things. And this in particular is a poll out of the Daily Mail. Because if you do a radio show, of course, you have to go to the Daily Mail. They know how to play this game. They know how to get your attention. And they did this poll on how people feel about Osama bin Laden. And they found one in five 18 to 29-year-olds and 18% of black voters have a positive view of Osama bin Laden. I looked a little bit into the cross tabs here, and only 41% of that group, 18 to 29, have a completely negative view of Osama bin Laden. Think about what that means. Think about what society has done to allow this to happen. Think about how we failed to teach what happened on 9-11 because it's uncomfortable. I watched the towers burn out of the window of my apartment in Hoboken, New Jersey. I wasn't too long out of Fox at the time. I was working for Rush again by then. It was something. I watched my colleagues there. I had another friend down in D.C. who was working for Fox at the time. He might have been at MSNBC at the time, but neither here nor there. But I made myself go to that window and watch. And it was partially because of something I wrote about in the New York Sun about Eisenhower and how he marched every German through the camps because he had this incredible foresight that someday people will say this didn't happen. And I don't want them to be able to say that shocking to me because when I'm sitting there on my couch and I I didn't close the window. I didn't want to close the window to the smell of that smoke. I'd look out, see the tower. There was only one tower. I never in a million years thought they wouldn't rebuild it for one thing. I just thought, well, now there'll only be one tower for a while. And then the second tower collapsed. Never would have imagined that we would get to a point where only 41% of people 18 to 29 have a completely negative view in this poll of a thousand people of Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden. And you know what? When I hear things like the events of 9-11, I've been complaining to families and friends and colleagues about that probably since people started using that euphemism. What does that mean? Was it a carnival? Or when they say the towers fell down, they didn't fall down. Well, if you remember that scene from The Simpsons, here's a little comic relief. The buildings didn't just decide to collapse. We now return to When Buildings Collapse on Nonstop Fox. Man has always loved his buildings. But what happens when the buildings say no more? Yes, evil men did it. Things like giving Osama bin Laden that nice traditional Muslim funeral, that didn't help. President Obama ordered that. President Biden, of course, was even against the mission to go and kill bin Laden, said we shouldn't do it. But why do that? For one thing, you spent the last 20 years telling us that Osama bin Laden wasn't a real Muslim, right? Let's go back to that thing I mentioned earlier. Well, he wasn't because he acted this certain way. But then they said, well, it'll offend Muslim people if we don't give him a nice burial. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who had to carry out this farce. Put yourself in the shoes of the U.S. Navy seaman who had to go and wash Osama bin Laden's putrid body for that Muslim funeral, for them to bury him at sea. Think of that for this idiotic policy. When you treat somebody with that respect, how do you expect young people not to get the idea that this person was worthy of respect? They didn't have to say what they did with his body. They certainly didn't have to treat it with respect. I'm not saying be one of these people who said, well, we should bury him in pig blood and we should employ the arcane rules 
that you might find buried in some religious tome, in this case the Koran, and say, well, here's how we could stop them from going and, and getting to heaven. If you do this or you, you dip the bullets in pig blood, they say all this. They don't care. Islam is not the real thing. They hate Jews. They hate anyone who's different from them. They can find ways to interpret it any way they want. Look how Americans interpret and reinterpret the Constitution. The Supreme Court looked in the Constitution and they said, whoa, there it is right there. Clearly in there, this is what the Founding Fathers meant. They meant that you should be able to end a pregnancy. And you can believe whatever you wish to believe on that. I have my opinions. But if you can do that with the U.S. Constitution and you are a learned legal scholar with decades and decades of experience, the top nine judges in the United States, a first world country, the leading country in the world, you're telling me that a bunch of corrupt people in the Middle East who are full of hate and envy and don't want anybody coming for what they have and they want to blame somebody else, you're telling me they can't find it in the Koran? Go look at the illiteracy rates in many of those countries, almost all of those countries. They can't even read the Koran themselves. They're kept illiterate for a reason. Democrats made it a crime to teach enslaved people to read. They knew what they were doing, keep people ignorant, and then they're resentful. Then they grow up and they become angry, and you can aim them at wherever you want. And we've let that happen here to our young people, 18 to 29. It's not just on them. Where are they supposed to learn that Osama bin Laden was evil? When they hear their comedians and they hear our politicians say things like, some people did something, or there were events, or it's a national day of service now. That was something I wrote in that New York Sun column. What are they supposed to think? Now 9-11 is just a day to go out and work at a soup kitchen? We don't have that for Pearl Harbor Day, do we? It's a date that lives in infamy. We never made it a day to go out and engage in charitable giving. That's a worthy goal. That's a fine goal. Ayn Rand might disagree with that, but I think altruism, if you want to do altruism, you're perfectly free to do it. But we've made 9-11 now. It went from Patriot Day, which is what they named it in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, to Patriot Day and National Day of Service. And this year, you see it just called in many places National Day of Service. How are those people, 18 to 29, who weren't alive during 9-11 or weren't paying attention during 9-11, to learn what that day was? We long ago stopped showing video of people like the falling man and those atrocities. Even when CBS did that documentary on 9-11, they cut out the sounds of people smashing through the glass ceilings because it was disturbing. But they should have kept it in, I would argue. What is the point of those documentaries? What's the point of Ground Zero, if not to remind people that we were attacked, that we were the victims of that attack? That YouGov poll in that column I wrote on December 9th demonstrated the same kind of thing about the Holocaust. The caricature I wrote of Holocaust deniers as old white right-wingers in rural America, it is exploded by this poll. The poll exposes the left as the home to those who refuse to believe the fate of six million Jews, and it illuminates democratic reluctance to exposing the anti-Semitism festering in their ranks. This poll was a poll of 1,500 adults, and I would always urge you to look at the sample size. I know Derek has that apt saying that if you control the unit of measurement. Well, I could tell you also that if you control the size of the poll, the polling sample, you can also skew the results quite a bit. I noted to myself that in that Daily Mail poll, the polling sample was 1,000 people. This one's 1,500. Nowadays, that's very big. Just 
make it a habit to look at the polling size in some of these polls that you see, especially if you see a poll of all 50 states and it's maybe 350 people. Think about how few that is spread out over the whole country in each state. I come from the days when Gallup would poll 3,600 people. That was considered a real sample size. We had big sample sizes back then. That was considered a key indicator of how accurate a poll was. But if you have a smaller sample size, not only is it cheaper, but also you can help skew it. You can use those polls to make news. But I have no doubt from what I'm seeing out there that this particular poll is worth mentioning because it's not just trying to make news. This YouGov poll asked these 1,500 adult Americans if they agree or disagree that the Holocaust is a myth. 10% of Democrats agreed. That was double the number of Republicans. 7% of liberals and 6% of conservatives said the same. In urban areas, the myth number hit 14%, and that was almost triple the 5% in rural GOP strongholds. And remember there what I was just saying about trying to keep people, if you can, uneducated, unable to read, and aimed on somebody else to blame for their troubles. We know who's running those big cities and who has been in charge of things like education for a long time. 30% of black Americans and 11% of Hispanics. 13% and 11%. Key constituencies for the left. They both are as a group. They deny the Holocaust. And that versus only 5% of whites who skew Republican. And let me tell you, I'm, I'm disturbed that we've come to a place where we just casually use the term whites, but you'll forgive me for saying that. I just think dividing people up like that is pretty gross. I also know that you have Asians who are considered white adjacent. You have the phenomenon of white Hispanics, which is kind of weird. And uh, I know there is plenty of hate out there, certainly for people from Southern Europe, like myself, myself from Greece. There's a lot of lynchings that went on back in the 60s, again, in those Democratic Jim Crow states. Among those who voted for President Biden, 7% believe the Holocaust never happened. That's one point ahead of those who backed President Trump. Overall, we had 11% of Democrats denying the Holocaust, three points more than Republicans. Liberals at 8% outpolled conservatives on denial by two points. And this had a plus or minus 3% error. So those last few numbers are a little close, but you can guarantee if they went the other way, nobody would be making that distinction. And you can also make a strong case that we shouldn't be ignoring the numbers and trying to play what Hank Hill called lawyer ball. Bobby, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, and you can't get on base without taking a swing. The pitcher could walk me, couldn't he? Don't play lawyer ball, son. Why do people think this? Why do people in Gen Z and millennials think that the Holocaust didn't happen? Why do they deny it? Well, there was a 2020 poll commissioned by the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, and it documented some of the reasons that I wrote in this column in the New York Sun are behind the trend. Schoen Cooperman Research ran the first ever 50-state survey on Holocaust knowledge of American millennials and Gen Z. They found 53% of the respondents didn't know that Nazi Germany had murdered 6 million Jews. This was a poll of 1,000 people, so not a huge sample size in each state, but still a good number of people, and it's still enough to show a national trend, certainly. And guess what? The number was highest in deep blue New York, 20%. One in five believed Jews caused the Holocaust. Never mind being victims of the Holocaust. Never mind dying in the Holocaust. One in five in New York of people aged 18 to 29 believe Jewish people caused the Holocaust. Overall, the number was 11% of young Americans who blamed the victims for their fate. Almost half couldn't name any of the over 40,000 Nazi death camps and ghettos. Who's running 
education in New York State, and what are they teaching them? Well, they're teaching them things that go with their larger narrative. They want to teach them about things that are going to advance their current narrative, the current people they hate. Republicans have to be the bad guys. They're the only bad guys that they are. This dichotomy of, well, bin Laden, he was a poor little Bedouin out there in the Arabian Peninsula just looking for... He was not. The guy was born to wealth and privilege, tons of oil money. He was not a poor little put-upon Bedouin. There's a picture out there. Go look up a picture of... I'm sorry, I'm hectoring you. But if you so choose, please, dear friends, go Google a picture of bin Laden when he was on a family vacation in London. It looks like the Partridge family, Riyadh. The guy was not living a horrible life. He was full of hatred. He was not living a devout life. It didn't matter what the Koran said. He was going to find a way to hate and murder and kill. And America ignored it. He wanted to do that. It didn't matter what he had to do to justify his actions. He was full of hate. He hated the royal family in Saudi Arabia. It didn't matter to him that they were Muslims. It didn't matter to him that they were the keepers of Mecca and Medina, as we often hear said. He just hated them. And he was able to capitalize on the fact that so many people were so angry and so uneducated that they followed him. And now, standing everything that would be just and right on its head, we have huge chunks of the American population, the young people who we hear are the future, agreeing with it. Not only agreeing with it, but saying they admire the guy. This is the existential threat. Oh, they love the term existential, don't they, in the media? Because it's one of those words that doesn't really seem to mean anything, and nobody's going to really ask you what it means, and it just became popular. All the cool kids were saying it. But this is the threat, because these are the young people. These are the leaders of tomorrow. And you know what? They're marching in the streets now. They're disrupting the Christmas lighting at Rockefeller Center, my old office. Mayor Adams in New York City is warning that they're going to disrupt the ball drop at midnight in Times Square. They're cordoning that off like it's some kind of military district in a war zone to keep people out who are favorable to Hamas. And make no mistake, that's what they are. They go and march into Christmas parades. I saw Davrio Moro, who, if you don't follow him on Twitter, absolutely do so, from the Outlaws Radio. He was just named one of Cleveland's most interesting people. And he posted a photo and he said, look at these pro-Hamas protesters going into a local community celebration of Christmas, a bunch of older African-American folks, and he said, no one's protecting our elders from these radical displays. Well, why are they doing it? It's no coincidence that they're targeting Christmas celebrations. Even though the Rockefeller Christmas tree is pretty much a secular performance, don't look at what they say they're doing. They're not for innocent Palestinians. Some of them there are. Some of them have been so poorly educated that they probably really think they are. They probably think Gaza was occupied. Even though Israel ended the occupation of Gaza in 2005, unilaterally, they just left. And yet, what do we hear? It was an open-air prison. It was under occupation and the occupation. There was no occupation. Where's the pushback? You're being used. Where are people telling their young people, their sons, daughters, nieces, nephews, students, that this is wrong? People get all worked up over young people who go to Auschwitz and they take selfies with smiling faces. Remember that? That was a few years ago. They, they thought that was terrible. That was disrespectful because that was on the Internet and people saw it and it gave you a chance to virtue signal. But, you know, smiling in a selfie is pretty much a reflex. Yes, it's not the place that's appropriate for smiles. I don't tend to smile even at graveyards. I go to a lot of historic graveyards. I even went to the gravestone of Jim Varney, who you may know from the Hey Vern movies and Ernest Goes To, etc. And he happened to be buried in Lexington, Kentucky. There were some nice tributes there at his gravestone. People had left little things. 
Well, I didn't smile next to the guy's gravestone, and the guy's passed away. Who's going to smile? But I understand the impulse, and initially you always think to. But that picture was worth a thousand words, probably launched a thousand tweets. But what are we doing one-on-one to come to young people and not to yell at them, not to hector them, really explain to them what happened in the Holocaust? They're taking Anne Frank's name off of a school in Germany because they say it doesn't really speak to migrants and immigrants. I'm doing air quotes if you can't see it. We know exactly who Germany has been welcoming in and why. Because you have a lot of these newcomers, mostly from Middle Eastern countries, who don't understand why it's a big deal that a Jewish girl was murdered or that Jews were killed in the Holocaust at all. It doesn't seem like a big deal to them. Those are not the people that you want to welcome into your country. And if you do, it's your job to come to them and explain why Anne Frank matters. Explain why the Holocaust happened and that it did really happen. It was not some CGI-generated fake. Another example is the moon landing. People say the moon landing was faked. America faked the moon landing. They said that for the longest time. It's still out there some now. But did you notice a subtle shift in the 50th anniversary? Suddenly it was humanity reached the moon. Well, humanity didn't reach the moon. The United States of America reached the moon. I'm currently watching a series called For All Mankind, which is a basically a left-wing reimagining of what would happen if the Soviets beat us to the moon, which, by the way, was never going to happen. They didn't have the industrial capacity. And they were there. They crashed on the moon, not a manned ship, but just a probe. And they didn't make it there. They were watching the whole time. They could have easily said, hey, the Americans faked the whole thing, which they would have certainly been incentivized to do, and they did not. Not something anybody ever mentions, though, because why? Again, the wider story isn't whether we went to the moon, which is the shiny tassel they want you to look at. It's just to put America down, to tell you if the government's lying to you. If they're lying to you about this, what else would they lie to you about? I did an interview for the History Author Show that I would encourage you to go listen to if you think the moon landing was faked or even if you're just interested in that history. It's called One Giant Leap by Charles Fishman. And I talked with him about things like Buzz Aldrin punching that guy in the face for saying that the moon landing was faked and he never walked on the moon when, of course, he did. And eh, it's Buzz Aldrin. You have to laugh when Buzz Aldrin punches someone. Who's possibly going to have the stones to tell the second man who walked on the moon that... He shouldn't slug someone if they get in his face and tell him that he lied about one of the greatest accomplishments in the entire history of America that showed the world what the United States could do. Would you like to yell at the moon with Buzz Aldrin? Yes, please. I own you. You dumb moon. I walked on your face. Don't you know it's day, idiot? This is not something that the government can do, educating people, getting rid of this scourge of hatred in our midst. And... The Jewish people are, in many ways, the canary in the coal mine for free people everywhere. We all know this as students of history, older people, people who are experienced and think for ourselves. They come for the smallest people first. They come for the weakest people first. And if we don't stand up for them, if we don't stand up against the concept of persecuting them and hating them, and we stand on the side of those who say, we can buy off the people in Hamas, we can buy off Al-Qaeda, look, we like Al-Qaeda, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of these people that put a Canadian flag on their backpack and go backpacking through some horrible country and think, oh, they love Canada. They won't think I'm an American now. They'll think I'm from Canada or they'll go places and tell you they're Canadian. They don't care as if they make that distinction. They don't even know what the UN flag is. Again, these people are kept very ignorant. And I say kept. I don't blame them. I blame the governments that they live under. I blame the people who say America is not something other nations should aspire to. We want to make the world a better place. Export America. Stop being insecure about it. Export our notions of a country that 
export this idea of freedom and liberty, of a nation that does great things, but that also is willing to look honestly at itself. Go to other countries, try insulting them, and see how far you get. But look at Americans. I said yesterday that Americans go to Europe and you'll get Europeans insulting America, or they'll come here and they'll insult America. And the Americans just say, oh, well, okay, that's true. And some of those things are, are well-meaning. Maybe it's a well-meaning conversation. But a lot of times it's just in your face and you say, who the heck are you to come into somebody's house and do it? I've traveled a bunch of places. I never presumed to tell someone their country was stupid or insulted. <laughs> but Americans have this notion that we accept that, that, oh, yeah, we should be put down. Can't count on somebody else to push back on those frontiers of ignorance. To quote Dr. Walter E. Williams, we all have to take a hand in that. And the way that we do it has to be smart. And I would say it has to be with some kindness. Because getting in people's faces, yelling at them, that's what everyone expects on social media. It's easy to shut down, easy to ignore. So if you are going to be somebody who I hope will push back on the ignorance of the world, the anti-Americanism, the anti-Semitism that gives way to anti-Americanism, hatred of Western civilization, I would encourage you to think about how you're going to do it if you want to play a positive role with young people because this number is just terrifying and we're raising up a generation that doesn't seem to think life is all that valuable. It ties together all of these topics, whether it's euthanasia, whether it's abortion, whether it's terrorists attacking, brutally murdering, raping, desecrating the bodies of innocent people in Israel. This is all tied together. It's all tied together to the job we have outsourced of raising the next generation of informing them because maybe we feel a little insecure as a nation and as a people. That's no way forward, and I hope that we find a better one, and I think we can all start it. You never know the people you influence just by living your life in the right way, being willing to speak up in a positive way with people and explain to them the truth of what happened in the past. I'm going to apologize to you for this next story because I have to play you something from CNN's Caitlin Collins. And you may remember her from all those homophobic slurs that she tweeted out. But fortunately for her, she was given an escape hatch. She was able to go over to the left, and so she was able to say, I used ignorant language in a few tweets, and she got away with it. It's one of the benefits of being somebody on the left, but we can't complain about it. We just have to do a better job ourselves. They can have a racist up-running Canada or a racist running Virginia in Ralph Northam, who, by the way, was perhaps the greatest spin of all time. I never thought I would live to see the day where someone's spin would be, no, I'm just the guy in blackface. I'm not the Klansman. He tried that. He tried that. Well, wearing a Klan costume. I'm sorry. If you put on the Klan outfit, you put on the Nazi outfit, you're a Nazi. You're not just playing along, especially in that era down in Virginia when it was this huge Democratic bastion at the time. But yeah, somehow got away with everybody. Even conservatives now say he wore blackface. Uh, I don't know. He couldn't say which one he was. I think the smart thing to do would have been to say, oh my gosh, this guy is in the Klan. But what do I know? Nobody asked me what I want to say. Everyone tends to just giggle and they get away with it. Justin Trudeau certainly got away with it, constantly prancing around. I mean, numerous occasions, both guys. It's just insanity. Uh, Joy Behar, she gets away with it. All those things are completely fine. But I just want to remind you for one second there, go look up Caitlin Collins if you've forgotten that story. I guess it's nice to be able to get away with it if you can. Here is the audio I want to play you from her show. Here she's speaking to former White House counsel John Dean, served in the Nixon administration. He's one of these guys that just turns up every time they need somebody to 
say a Republican president is horrible and should be impeached and bring up Watergate. Here he is talking about the Colorado court, which ruled that President Trump can be kept off the GOP primary ballot. And I would stress here that it is the primary ballot. A lot of people are saying this as if it's the 2024 presidential ballot. It is not. They stopped short of that, likely because they knew that that would not pass muster, that it would be overturned by the Supreme Court. But I would warn you against anybody in the media who is either on one side or the other who's acting like this means that Colorado will be off the table for electoral votes for President Trump in 2024. If they're doing that, it's to make it sound a lot worse than it is either because they want you to listen, want you outraged, or because they're just ignorant. Either way, you shouldn't put too much stock into somebody who doesn't understand that key distinction. Here is John Dean. For more perspective on this tonight, I am joined by none other than John Dean, the former White House counsel to President Richard Nixon. It's so great to have you here, John Dean. I mean, just before we get to the the politics of this and what the Republican field thinks, no matter how you slice this, this is historic. It is unprecedented. What did you make of this ruling? I was quite surprised. I have made a quick first trip through it. It's 213 pages, very closely reasoned. Uh, the dissents are more about state law and what, how the procedure in state law operates or should not operate and whether this was a proper question to be before the state court or a federal uh, uh, political question. So it, it, it's what's most striking, though, uh, Caitlin, is it's very much like the reasoning of the conservative legal community. Uh, there have been a number of law journal articles that have come out uh, by Federalist Society uh, credentialed law professors who've raised this issue, and it sounds like this court has, has very much uh, followed that line of thinking and interpretation of the 14th Amendment. Yeah, when you look at, at what they decided here, and this is the big news, you know, with the district judge's ruling, which was, you know, what that she found about Trump engaging in the insurrection, saying that it was really just a technicality why she believed Trump could not be booted from the ballot. But this court, what they found was that the insurrectionist ban does apply to the presidency, that January 6th was an insurrection, and also that Trump engaged in that insurrection. I mean, even if this does get ultimately reversed by the Supreme Court, this is still the Colorado Supreme Court that, that found these three things and their view to be true. I'm not sure at all it will be reversed by the uh, federal Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, to the contrary, mm -hmm. I think uh, the thinking of this court and, and the high court could be very similar. Uh, one of the things I found interesting in the ruling is that the uh, Colorado Supreme Court did embrace the January 6th committee hearings. They uh, adopted them, looked at them, used them, relied on them, uh, and that was a finding of fact uh, that they found that they could uh, em employ, and so that'll probably apply as well to the U.S. Supreme Court. I think Ben Ginsburg's point about timing is very interesting. I think he might be right that it's early. Uh, the, the way this, they don't have don't have to rule immediately to solve the Colorado problem because it's been stayed in Colorado. Trump's name will appear on the uh, primary ballot if the way it now goes if they don't get to it. And there's no, you know, there's just really no problem there. Uh, so that could well defer them until another case comes along. Now, this is cast as something very dramatic, and I wanted to use this as another example of that broader picture. First of all, the Supreme Court probably won't rule on this before it even matters. The primary is going to come before they get a chance to rule on it. All they have to do is 
post it, and the Supreme Court doesn't move that fast. It will likely be moot by the time the Supreme Court even considers hearing the case. It also doesn't apply to that federal ballot, the ballot for what looks like it's going to be Trump-Biden. So why is it important? Because I'm not one of these people that dismisses it. I find that's a very common impulse on the right, where people talk themselves out of things mattering. Oh, they impeached Trump. That doesn't matter. Oh, they impeached him again. Well, that doesn't matter. He was acquitted. Oh, they raided Trump's house. Well, that doesn't matter because they've really gone overboard now. And now his poll numbers are going up. Oh, they've indicted Trump. They've indicted Trump. Oh, wait, they indicted Trump again. They indicted Trump. None of that matters. He's not going to go to prison. Now they've convinced themselves, well, even if he goes to prison, that's a good thing. I wrote a whole great column on that, by the way, that I really enjoyed, that we did have Eugene V. Debs, a socialist candidate for president in 1920, who campaigned from prison, got a million votes, quite a bit. When you think about the population in 2020, I think it was about 3% of the overall vote. It was a Republican president, our friend from yesterday, Warren G. Harding, who ended up granting him some clemency, went and invited Eugene V. Debs to the White House, made some peace. That's a guy who really is looking for unity. President Biden promises it a lot, but I don't really see it. If they overturn this case or they ignore this case or this case doesn't come before the Supreme Court because they don't want to take it or there's not enough time, supporters of Donald Trump are going to say, well, that's a big success. That's a win. They screwed up. They didn't screw up because they're eroding with each of these steps the idea that he's a legitimate candidate. What's everyone talking about now? The insurrection clause. Well, by doing this, and we have a Supreme Court that did it, people aren't going to make the distinction that, well, it's four Democrats on the Supreme Court in one state. They don't care about that. They don't care these people are partisans. That's not what gets through. What gets through in people's heads is this idea that Donald Trump, one Supreme Court said, is ineligible for the ballot because, although he's not been convicted of an insurrection, although nobody has been charged with an insurrection from January 6th, they believe it was an insurrection. And by the Supreme Court not acting, guess what? They further undermine the Supreme Court. They further put wind in the sails of President Biden's push to pack the Supreme Court, as FDR wanted to do, expand it beyond nine members. They are going to point out that three members of that court were appointed by President Trump during his term. It's set up for them to win everywhere. So while people are looking at that little tassel of the court case itself, while they're maybe trying to exaggerate it, which shows they don't think it's that serious by saying he's off the ballot when he's only off a ballot, they're playing part of that game. The game is to undermine. The game is always to advance on many fronts. You know, like Derek, I'm a comic book fan, and I remember reading way back, I guess it was a Fantastic Four, because Mephisto, the master of the underworld, he looks exactly like you would think a guy named Mephisto would look, all red skin, red coat, horns, standard business casual for Hades. He said at one point, I remember, you humans are fools. He's talking to the Fantastic Four here. You humans always have plans. I, on the other hand, do not have a plan. I have multiple plans. And depending on which eventuality unfolds, because I know, well, he wasn't saying this, but he knew that no plan survived contact with the enemy. But he also knew, as Dwight D. Eisenhower said, plans are meaningless, but planning is essential to be ready. This allows people who don't want Donald Trump to be president to have a multitude of options. And Republicans are not ahead of any single one of them because they're getting distracted by the tassel yet again. Because they're going to look at this and say, what do we have? We have a Watergate guy. Oh, we have to talk about Nixon again. We don't want to talk about Nixon. Oh, well, the court is doing this. Oh, gosh, we hope the Supreme Court saves us. Either by not hearing this or ruling against it. It's not about those things. It's about multiple things. And none of them are seeing it. You all, however, now hopefully have been made wise to it if I've done my job. And I hope I have. 
Well, that's it for the Derek Hunter Podcast for this Thursday. I will have more for you tomorrow. I will be back here again. My name is Dean Carianis. You can find me at the New York Sun, nysun.com. I hope you will go there and visit. You can hear and read some of my previous columns, previous work, some of my shows that I've done, over 260 now on the History Author Show, although I've been a little tardy getting new ones out there. But you can find me there. Also watch some of those on YouTube, including my interview with James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snerdly, about our time working for Rush Limbaugh. If you loved Rush, like listening to Rush, miss Rush, and we hear from people all the time, all of us do on the show, his former team, as well as his wife, Catherine. We still hear so much from people who miss Rush. I would encourage you to go watch that. It's about Bo's book, Rush on the Radio. Don't watch it because it's me on YouTube. Watch it because if you liked Rush, you'll get some inside perspective. I always say to people that if you say, I wish I'd had the chance to meet Rush, if you heard him on the radio, you did meet him because that was the real guy. And I just like to share him as somebody who I really appreciated getting to know. The greatest job in the world was being paid to listen to him and enjoy the Rush Limbaugh show all those years, not to mention contribute to it. Can you imagine? It was really a great opportunity. And I only wish everybody could have met him and everyone could have had a job that was that fun and that rewarding and that dedicated to making America a better place, keeping it that shining city on the hill that Ronald Reagan talked about. So go ahead and check that one in particular out on YouTube. But there's plenty of history there for you to delve into, especially things on World War II. The real story there is a goal of mine always to think of young people and think of educating them about the future, the job that is not being done in our school, as those polls showed. So if you have a young person, I don't know that I'm down on the latest jargon and pop culture figures, but... If you are in a car, if you have a captive audience, (laughs) no, you don't have to capture them to listen to me. I always do try to keep it interesting, keep it fun and entertaining, but also informative. And that's probably the best way to inform people is when you're also being entertained. So you can go check all those out at historyauthor.com. You can find me at History Dean on Twitter, and I'm all over social media at various places. I don't want to be there, but I do want to be everywhere you are. So that's where I am trying to push back those frontiers of ignorance, trying to do my little bit to speak out from America that sometimes seems like it's a distant place in the past and is being eroded right out from under our feet. But that is not the case. So be of good cheer. We have an election year coming up and we have a couple more days here to spend together before Derek gets back with his big super secret announcement. So don't miss tomorrow's Derek Hunter podcast. I will be back and I will expect each of you to be here with me. I will be taking roll call. The class just won't be the same if you're absent. Do you know that you're one of the few predator species that preys even on itself? 